1: Balls. Nothing personal word of the day for Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. First day of December, balls. It's one of my favorite words in the English language. But we're talking about baseballs. What a story that broke yesterday. Everybody's up in arms, and I hope you're coming to Nothing Personal to get the real scoop because there is more misinformation out there on this subject than on almost any other subject I've seen. It's certainly a top five in Major League Baseball right now. You understand what's happening with labor. The collective bargaining agreement is expiring today at 11.59 PM. There are discussions going on, we're gonna get to that. But there's a level of distrust between the players and the owners that always existed During my career and every time there's this amazing recency bias that this time it's worse. This time the players and owners really don't like each other. It's the same way every single time a CBA is coming up. Now you're going to say there hasn't been a work stoppage since 1994 so it can't be the same and I'm going to tell you you're wrong. And we'll get to it. But what happened yesterday was awesome. I wanna bring you back to a Nothing Personal episode we did. And if Coca and I were on it, we'd play a clip right now. But Coca doesn't know what's in my mind. Even pregame, we didn't discuss that this would be in my mind because it wasn't in my mind. But Pete Alonso gave an interview, the New York Mets player, gave an interview during the season this year, this past season, where he claimed that Major League Baseball was sending different types of balls according to the free agents in the marketplace so this year with all the shortstops he hypothesized that baseball was deadening the ball so these shortstops would not get good numbers and therefore get fewer dollars and when pitchers are free agents he said they juice the balls so that the ball travels and therefore, the pitchers don't get huge free agent deals. Pete Alonso, I draw your attention to Max Scherzer, $43 million. I draw your attention to Corey Seager, $325 million. That's the end of that. Are we done? Pete Alonzo has no idea what he's talking about. I said it back then. But he's now being brought back up because word came out yesterday that, in fact, MLB used two different balls during the 2021 season. So everyone went back to the Pete Alonso statement and said, look, the smoking gun we've all been waiting for. Major League Baseball is doctoring its equipment to the detriment of the players. And they've got quotes and they've got sources. They had a pitcher get game balls and deconstruct them and weigh them and all this crap. It is important for you to know from where I stand and from where I sit. I'm currently sitting right now, if you're watching on Nothing Personal with David Sampson YouTube channel, in a nice black blazer, pink shirt, hair neatly combed, weighing my usual buck 30. Although I did have extra breakfast. Major League Baseball, in its collective bargain agreement, sets out the parameters for its baseball. The measurements the weight, there is a standard deviation contained in the definition of what a game used baseball will be. And every ball that was used in 2021 fits the exact definition of what the ball should be. So there's nothing to see there. I wanna make sure you have that as point number one. Every ball, fits within the definition that is contained within the collective bargain agreement of what the ball should be. Done. However, in February, Major League Baseball sent out a memo saying they were going to quote-unquote deaden the baseball. And they said, be ready. The baseball still remains within the specified specifications. <laughs> I cannot say that. Say that five times. Within the specified specifications. The specified specifications. However, They did something to the inside of the ball, which are made, the balls are made in Costa Rica by a company called Rawlings. Rawlings is owned by baseball, but that is perfectly normal and smart to own your supply chain. Look at your own business. Baseball wanted the balls to be deadened because the home run rates, the strikeout rates, were so excessive they wanted more action They told the teams and the players what they were going to do. However, it was always known to the teams and, therefore, the players that in 2021, the new balls, the deaden balls, would be used and the leftovers from the 2020 season would also be used because... 2020 was supposed to be 162 games, so Rawlings manufactures 162 games worth of baseballs. There were only 60 games played, therefore there were extra balls. So baseball used those balls and then started using new balls. The balls all get sent to a stadium. We would get a shipment of balls from Rawlings, more than you can imagine. There's a storage room in every stadium where we have all the balls. Before a game, the ball boys go in, really the clubbies, we call them clubbies. They go in, they take out the game balls, they rub them with a pre-approved mud, if you will, and those become game balls. Dozens and dozens of balls are used during the course of a game, and they're all pre-prepared and ready in a bucket when you see a ball boy next to the dugout, who's a clubby, who washes jock straps when he's not delivering balls to the umpire, Those are balls manufactured by Rawlings prepared for game use by each individual stadium, by each home team. Some teams use humidors, like in Colorado. More and more teams are using that, by the way. Everyone has the ability to do with the ball that which they want, only if they've already done to the ball that which they are prescribed to do, which is that mud ingredient that makes the ball sort of dirty when you see that when you get a foul ball if you've ever caught a foul ball it looks pretty used even though it was one pitch and you can see the scuff where the bat hit the ball if you ever get a foul ball look for that and you can see whether or not it hit the label you can see where it hit on the bat it's pretty cool however there are people now saying that they studied the balls in 2021 and there is some confusion Because certain teams had more new balls and fewer old balls. Certain teams had more old balls and fewer new balls. When you order from Rawlings, let me put an end to this. Teams submit their order and balls are sent. The people at Rawlings do not specify a certain batch to be used by a certain team at a certain time. We are never called by baseball or the union or anyone else to say, hey, for this primetime game, use these balls. For this crappy game on a Tuesday afternoon, use those balls. Let's liven the ball Tuesday and deaden the ball Wednesday. We don't put a knife into the ball and look at the batch number, the way these articles are saying that there are batch numbers. So you can tell when they're made. In the real world, we don't do that. We get the balls sent to us, we prepare them, and we use them. It is our absolute tacit understanding when we receive balls that those are regulation game balls. Does every baseball feel different? Of course it does. Have you ever watched a baseball game when a pitcher gets a ball from the umpire, the pitcher rubs it with his hands, the pitcher looks at it and goes and shakes his hand, if you're not watching, I'm moving my right hand as though I'm shaking a ball from left to right, and says, no, I don't want that ball, throws it to the catcher, the catcher gets rid of the ball, the umpire throws the next ball. Why do pitchers do that? Because they're looking for the right grip that they want, they're looking for the right amount of mud that they want, and they have an idea of what they like to pitch with according to what pitch they're going to use, which is why pitchers will look at a ball and sometimes get rid of it, often the catchers know what the pitchers want so the catchers will look at a ball and then throw it away and put their hand behind to the umpire to get a new ball and all those balls are from the home team and all those balls are from rawlings and not one of those balls is told to us is going to be in which batch or what batch we don't know so the conspiracy theory that has been promulgated around the intergoogle overnight yesterday into today is that baseball was purposefully doing this and players are saying this is another example of why we don't trust owners and the commissioner folks i've spent a lot of time with commissioner seal again manford over my years and i can promise you one thing and i have not one hesitation saying it you can check it rob manford does not himself or direct anyone else to specify which balls are, spent, are sent to which team. Not once, not ever, period, hard stop. Of course, baseball is always working on the balls within the specifications in the collective bargaining agreement. Of course, the competition committee and the Plain rules committee and the strategic initiative committee, the executive council, all of the committees of ownership and presidents, we're always looking for ways to improve the game, to improve your product. How many of you work for a company where any company, I don't care what you are doing, that you're not trying to improve your product at all times? What bothers me about this story, about the balls, is that the players feel emboldened and they feel slighted. And they are letting that slight manifest itself as part of the labor negotiation. Major League Baseball says the sky is blue and Bruce Mayer and the players say, no, no, it's gray. Major League Baseball says there's nine innings in a game and the players say, are you sure? Sometimes it's eight and a half. When two sides are negotiating a collective bargaining agreement, you have to have a commonality of interest and the commonality of interest should be no work stoppage. The commonality of purpose should be coming to an agreement to ensure the continuity of the game. The messaging from both sides should be very, very clear. And it's not happening. The messaging from the owners and from the commissioner is so important today, tonight, tomorrow when the lockout is announced. And the messaging needs to be about fans, about fairness, about product, about understanding. The message from the players has to be about appreciation, fairness, understanding, and a path forward. I understand that players are in a union and they have a right to fight, we're going to fight for our right to party. Come on, feel the noise. I understand that players feel that they have a responsibility for themselves and for the players who are coming after to make the working conditions as positive as possible for them to maximize the amount of money that every player can make, whether you're a young player or an old player. I recognize the owners of the company have the ultimate right to decide who they pay the money to, And don't ever forget, when you are negotiating with an owner, the owners have every right to decide what they're going to do with their teams, their franchises, and they will not be told, you must have a certain payroll. You must try to win as many games as you want. You must pay young players a certain amount. Owners are not going to get told that. We've witnessed these past few days that the best of the best are always going to get paid and they're getting paid more and more and more. Where do you think the money comes from? And the irony of all of this is that the players fighting like Max Scherzer, who is simply Scott Boris's mouthpiece at the table. Max Scherzer is at the executive council level of the union, along with four other Boris clients out of eight, five out of eight are Boris clients. They sit in a meeting with owners and with the commissioner and they read from a piece of paper They've been briefed on the issues by Boris. They've been told exactly where Boris wants them to land on issues from the draft, from arbitration, minimum salaries, et cetera. And they come at it from a position like Max Scherzer, who doesn't know one thing about labor and just signed a $43 million a year deal for three years from Steve Cohn. And he is the one speaking for the little people. You guys criticize that in politics, don't you? When really rich people run for president. How can you speak for me? I'm a middle American working hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck. What do you know about that? And they say, I used to be that. That's how I started. And you say, no, that's not true. It may be how you started, but I know that you can't possibly have me in mind when you are deciding what your policies are as you run our country. It's the same thing with the Boris clients. Think about it. Max Scherzer can think back to long ago when he was a drafted player and hitting arbitration, getting to free agency. He can imagine what it would be like to have made more money or to have the ability to sign more contracts, higher annual value. But he's not in that position anymore. And the reason why he was chosen to be on the executive council is that he's in the perfect position to Swing a big stick at the owners, but the owners know exactly what's happening. They know exactly what Boris is doing. They know exactly why Bruce Meyer was hired to represent the players, and that is to fight. You know, there's several types of lawyers. We talked about this a little bit with doctors, right? The doctors who cut, the doctors who don't, the lawyers who litigate, the lawyers who settle. Today, we learned that last night, or earlier and yesterday, there was a meeting with just Dick Montfort and Dan Hallam. Dick Montfort's the owner of the Rockies. Dan Hallam is the deputy commissioner. He's the second in charge of the commissioner's office. Dick Monfort, representing the owners, had a two-on-two meeting with Bruce Mayer, who's the second in charge at the union under Tony Clark, and Andrew Miller, a player we traded for when he played for the Tigers. He was a great prospect, and he did not become the starter we thought he would, but he's become a great bullpen arm. He's had a great career, made a lot of money. He now is the head player rep, a very reasonable, smart guy who I've spent hours talking to over the years. And they're sitting in a meeting, and they're going through issues. And meanwhile, they're texting out to their friends and to other people on the council and to other owners and to the commissioner who are in other rooms or in other cities hearing what's happening, hearing no resolution, and then you hear a little report. Don't forget when you read John Heyman's tweets, they're from Scott Boris, but you hear some tweets about where the labor is and whether or not there's going to be a lockout. And I want you as fans to stop paying attention to the noise. It is so important because I have no faith that the players or the owners are going to get it right with you. I have no faith that they're going to say what they're supposed to say from a PR standpoint. I have no, no good feeling that they're going to play it right at all from a communication standpoint. When you read things like there was a 30-minute big meeting between owners and players, and that's a bad sign. It should have gone an hour and a half. And then you read another comment, there was a 50-minute meeting between Andrew Miller and Dan Halem, et cetera. What does it all mean? Well, I'm here to tell you what it means nothing the length of a negotiating session means absolutely nothing because the majority of work that gets done to get a collective bargaining agreement done is actually done when the sides are not meeting because every side knows where they are on every issue and every side knows where the other side is on every issue So the biggest meetings are the meetings you don't hear about, the calls that go on between the large market owners and the small market owners, the calls that go on between agents and the players union and the players union and the player reps and then the player reps and their teammates. Those are meetings where compromises take place, where you decide what hill you are going to die on, what issues you will not under any circumstances sign a labor deal with that issue not resolved in your favor And then you take that information and you present it to the other side in what can be a five-minute meeting that can accomplish as much as what you would think would take a two-day meeting. Because you present an issues list with a piece of paper, you present a proposal on the issues list of where you're willing to go. You hand it over, they say thank you. The other side walks out of the room, reads it, talks to its constituents, and says, I like, I like, I don't like, don't like, let's change that. Like, like, sort of like, not at all, no chance, forget it. Then they go back, and they present the piece of paper. We're good on that, we're good on that, no good, no good, almost good. We could be good if that happens. That, not on your life. That is the back and forth that's gonna happen during negotiating sessions. Whether there's a lockout or not, whether it's been reported that the sides have had no talks, don't believe that. There is constant communication between the sides. There's constant communication in the sides. Owners will talk to each other and the commissioner every day of a lockout. The executive council will speak every day of the lockout of the players. The player reps will have calls every day. The owners will have calls every day. Strategically, it may be reported they're not going to do it that way. Strategically, it may be reported there's been silence. There's going to be a lot of doom and gloom, and woe is me. But at the end of the day, as I read through the issues list and think about from both sides, tanking, draft order, arbitration, free agency, revenue sharing, competitive balance, luxury tax thresholds, There's not one issue in the Major League Baseball collective bargaining agreement that either side is willing to blow up the game in order to secure. Not one. They may say they will, and it's posturing. They may say they will, and they're bluffing. The time between December 2nd or December 1st at 11.59, however you want to say it, tonight 11.59, And February, don't pay attention to anything. Come to nothing personal. We're going to cut through exactly what's happening in the talks. We'll give you the scoop and the real scoop and nothing but the scoop. Remember, from yesterday's show and the show before, and I'm going to do it a lot. I'm not growing the beard during the lockout, I'll tell you that. Coca, no beard. I was thinking about it actually the other day. Should we grow a lockout beard And I thought about the COVID beards that we grew, and I thought about how insane. Coca, can we put a picture up of the beards that we grew during somewhere on Twitter, at David P. Sampson, when when we do this show, when you release the show? Can we do a picture of of our beards? We're not doing it. I'll tell you when to panic. But in the meantime, let's keep watching movies. When we come back, I'm going to review a movie that not one of you has seen not one. It's called Bergman Island. And I also want to talk to you about a question I got about the Yankees. It was a great question based on a very interesting tweet. We will be right back.
0: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: Welcome back to Nothing Personal. It's December 1st. It's a new month. It's the last month. Coca, this is it. I can't. I thought we were still in 20 for some reason, although 21 has been a god awful year for me. I'm quite excited to get to 2022, and it makes me so anxious to wish time away because you know that's the only commodity that I can't get more of. Can't find more. There's no fountain of youth. As I look in the mirror and see my father more and more every single day, as I look at the crow's lines on my eyes and wonder when I look at my hands, how did I and when did I turn into my father? That's it. Last month of 2021. This is the month you go to Europe, Coca. You are 12 days away, baby. All right, so I watched a movie because one of you suggested it. I love the fact that you all send me movies to watch. I've got a list on my phone of all sorts of things you want me to watch. And I get to them sometimes, there's so much content. But this one interested me because I did not know one thing about it. i never heard of the movie, but I saw that it stars Tim Roth, And Tim Roth, you may know, it's okay, honey bunny. It's okay, honey bunny. Be calm, honey bunny. That's Tim Roth. Coca, do you know what I'm talking about by chance? I can't hear you. I don't know if you're talking to me right now. Are you awake? You all right? Are you there? No? Yes? It's from Pulp Fiction. Honey bunny in the coffee shop? Okay, anyway. Tim Roth is in a movie called Bergman Island. Did you know that there's an island where Igmar, I'm gonna get it wrong. I knew this would happen because I didn't rehearse it with you, Coca. Ignamar, there's no way I'm saying that right. Igmar Bergman, the famous filmmaker, he made a bunch of his movies and lived the balance of his life on an island that now has a museum for him and a writing institute. And they made a movie about two writers who get a grant, or who get permission to live in Bergman's house and write plays? It's the same house where, to remember, uh, come on, Coca, do it with me. Uh, Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain were just in an HBO Max multi-part uh, a remake called "Scenes from a Marriage," and that is remade from an. Ig- ign- Bergman, I'm just calling Bergman, okay? Can we just call him Bergman? From a Bergman film. And the bed where so many scenes are filmed when Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain are in bed, the actual bed from the original movie is the bed that Tim Roth slept in with his girlfriend, who's a great actress, by the way. The movie is extremely intellectual, slow, fascinating. The pacing is such that if you don't take a breath, And you don't lean into it, you will close your eyes and fall asleep. But if you are willing to get taken on a journey, on the writer's journey, on the interesting things that happen between couples when they're both writers and one has writer's block and one doesn't, and one has a great career and one is just starting or it's fledgling, and what that does to couples, I really liked it. I want to go visit Bergman Island right now, I can tell you that. So thank you for that suggestion. Keep the suggestions coming. All right, Coca, play it for me, Sam. You know what I want. (laughs) I want
0: to talk to Samson.
1: You know what I want. I want to talk to Samson. So you want to talk to Samson, get on Twitter, David P. Samson. Get in my DMs and ask me a question. You can also follow me on Instagram, David P. Samson. You can also follow Nothing Personal, subscribe to the YouTube channel. There's like a million ways to interact with me, and I try to be as interactive as possible with everyone. And some of you will say, do a great job. Some of you will say, do a crappy job. But the ones who say, do a crappy job are ones that I don't get to, and it's not purposeful, I promise, because I value each of your time and that you give me and Coke of 45 minutes of your day every day. The November numbers are in, and you guys made Nothing Personal successful again. We have to start buying bigger pants and bigger jackets because our chests are expanding just a little bit, but we will never take your 45 minutes for granted. Here's the question that I got yesterday. You discussed the Yankees today. Can you please explain the following tweet and say whether you agree or disagree? Thanks. And do I need to say hello, David, for you to respond to this? (laughs) I get it. I like when people say hello. It's hello, hey, I have a question for you. Hi, David, I have a question for you. Hello, David, and don't spell my name wrong. Any, anytime I get a DM of S-A-M-P-S-O-N, it's probably not gonna make the show. It shouldn't be hard to know there's no P. What tweet is he referring to? Someone sent a tweet yesterday that caught my attention because it is the exact misinformation that makes me smile and it gives me an opportunity to talk to you about a subject. In 2005, the tweet said, the Yankees' payroll was $205 million. In 2005, the Yankees' revenue was $277 million. The Yankees' payroll today, in 2019, the last full season, was $210 million. The revenue that year was $683 million. The franchise is now worth $7 billion. They're making more money and not spending it. No fan should give them another dollar. Oh, my God. I appreciate that not everyone is an economist. I appreciate not everyone has the capacity or desire to understand how companies are valued or how financial statements work. I appreciate that no one really cares or wants to understand what EBITDA means, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. I understand that fans don't care about owners losing money. they're only interested in winning. I understand the Yankees fans are upset they haven't won the World Series since 2009. Don't worry, Texas and Seattle and Milwaukee and Tampa and Colorado. Don't worry. They haven't won it in 2009. They haven't been back to the World Series since '09. Failures, abject failures. And the money they're spending, it's a pittance. Why would they not be willing to go over the luxury tax threshold and pay a usurious penalty that was agreed to by the players that was going to serve as a salary cap de facto? It's like in the NBA. Do you get upset when Mickey Harrison of the Heat cuts a player because he doesn't want to go over the cap and pay a, pay a penalty where you end up paying a player $10 million and you have to pay equal in penalties? So you're actually paying that player $20 million who's not worth $20 million? Or in baseball, if you go over the competitive luxury tax threshold where you give up draft picks and you pay a tax, for what? And you look at a player and say, that player is not worthy of twice what we're paying him. When the Yankees look at Tampa who make the playoffs and make it to the World Series and say, hey, if they can do it on $70 million, why can't we do it on two hundred and ten? That's only part of the problem with the tweet. What's the difference between 2005 and 2019? Anyone? Is anyone willing to raise your hand and say, hey, there's a difference between 05. Let me think about it. What was going on in 2005? 2005. 2003, the Marlins were in the World Series. They won game six in Yankee Stadium. The last team to celebrate a World Series in Yankee Stadium, the Florida Marlins in 2003. But what do we call it now? We call it Old Yankee Stadium. Yes, we do. Because since 2005, there's something called New Yankee Stadium. New Yankee Stadium comes with much more expensive seats. A lot of all-inclusive areas with great food, great buffets, huge prices, great increases in revenue. My God, their revenue was only $210 million in 2005, or $277 million in 2005, and now it's $683 million. $406 406 million dollars extra. How could the Yankees payroll not be 600 million? I'm recording the show live. May I call you back please? How could the Yankees payroll not go up commensurate with the revenues? That tweet forgot to mention the fact of what the Yankees paid, To build the new stadium and the debt that they incurred to build the new stadium and the debt service that needs to be paid on the money they borrowed to build the new stadium so you can't look at just revenue and not put in your tweet their other expenses why can't you put their other expenses in because you don't know them i got a surprise for you that i always found interesting with the yankees do you know the yankees lose money And I always said, what a joke, right? Of course the Yankees lose money because the team loses money, but they make money back on the Yes Network. So I always got jealous because they could hide the money. And they would always show in their financials that the team was losing money, but I knew that the same people who owned the team owned the network, and I knew how much the network was making because I did the math, and I knew what the network was paying the Yankees in rights deals, but I knew how much the network was making on top of that. Did you know that the Yankees sold off a huge interest in their network? Did you know the Yankees took money off the table? Did you know the Yankees have paid down a tremendous amount of debt in order to borrow extra money in order to get a new Yankee Stadium built? And yes, the franchise may be worth more. Is it worth 7 billion? 6 billion? 4 billion? 10 billion? Go out and buy yourself a team. People get upset when I say that, Coca. They really do. People say, you know, you're so privileged. You were president of a team and you owned a team, which I never did. I was always the president. So I can't just go out and buy that. Yeah, you can. It doesn't have to be a baseball team. Buy buy a corner store. Buy a business with revenue of $10,000. Buy something. Build up your equity in it. Make it profitable. And then... Have your customers come to you and say, hey, way to take the risk. Good job, good company. Your company's worth more than the day you bought it. I'm going to take some of that. Can you imagine if a bank did that to you with your house? When you had the ability and foresight to put a down payment on a house and your neighborhood got better, improvements happened, a better town store, more destination points and restaurants and your house goes from 100 grand to 200 grand and the bank comes to you and says, hey, We'd like that, please. Do you mind? Yeah, I mean, we gave you the money when it started. We lent you the money to buy the house. We're going to take the increase in value. We're going to split it with you. We're partners, aren't we? Or better yet, as an eater, as a diner in a restaurant, when you pay to get a service, you're paying to eat, they're giving you food, you like it, You pay for it, you come back. If you don't come back, the store closes, the restaurant closes. If you like the food, you go back and the restaurant makes money. Do you go back and say, you know what? I appreciate the food. I appreciate the fact that I like to dine at your fine restaurant. Let me know what it's worth because I believe that you should be lowering prices of my meals because the restaurants worth so much more money. It's horse hockey. No one operates like that. If you don't want to go to Yankee games, then don't. Do you think Hal Steinbrenner sits around upset that you don't want to go to a Yankee game? Hal Steinbrenner knows the value of his team, and he knows what makes that value. National broadcast deals, local broadcast deals. Hal Steinbrenner knows that being a part of a major league's one of 30 franchises has inherent value because that's what oligopolies have, if I could use that word to describe baseball. That tweet really was something yeah i disagree with it it's giving you half the picture hey i'd like to tell you it's raining is that good are you satisfied if i say that to you don't you want to know where doesn't that inform your decision of whether or not you need an umbrella it's raining that's the equivalent of this tweet saying the revenue's higher therefore the payroll should be too completely ridiculous by the way Yesterday at 8 p.m. was the non-tender deadline. Remember, the non-tender deadline was going to be December 2nd. And you may recall that the tender deadline was moved to november 30th because they didn't want the tender deadline after the lockout because then there'd be so many players up in the air are they going to be non tendered are they not going to be non-tendered are they going to be tendered what tendering means is you give a contract to a player and say here you go you are on our team we'll discuss later what you're going to get paid but you're on our team when you're non-tendered it means hey Thanks so much, you're now a free agent. You've got from now, 8 p.m. on November 30th until 11.59 p.m. on December 1st, good luck finding a team. Way to go. If it works, great. If not, you're a free agent like so many others, and you can sign with anyone you want once the lockout ends. The Yankees had some big decisions to make, right? Are they going to tender Gary Sanchez? As a Yankee fan, you've got the luxury of tendering Gary Sanchez. 25 teams don't. Because when you tender a player like Gary Sanchez, they go into the arbitration system and they get paid as though they're good. They did deals with Herman and Ursula. The Yankees are a large revenue team keeping their players and just because they don't sign Corey Seager or Max Scherzer and haven't won a World Series since 09, it doesn't mean they're not trying. It means they're just not good at figuring out who to sign and who not to sign. I'm watching next year. I talked to you about Corey Kluber. Brian Cashman does not want Kluber to have a good year in Tampa. I can promise you that. So this tender deadline was somewhat interesting to me because I was thinking about what I would do for example, as the Marlins president, because that's the team I'm closest to. So I think about the Marlins and the moves they've made. They've been in the news a lot, right? They're in the news with the Rangers is spending all this money. They send Garcia. They had, that's the free agent they signed for $53 million. They re-signed one of their pitchers who was arbitration eligible. So they're getting credit for $56 million, But it's just, they tendered Sandy Alcantara. Alcantara, I can never remember how it is. But the question was, what were they going to do with Jesus Aguilar and with Jorge Alfaro? Remember Jorge Alfaro, right? He's the catcher they got back in the JT Realmuto trade, who everyone was all excited about. Well, the Marlins decided to trade him to the Padres yesterday because they were going to non-tender him. And what you're going to read is that the Marlins got back a player to be named later, a prospect, plus a player to be named later. It's a bag of balls. Because the Padres knew that the Marlins were non-tendering Alfaro. When a player gets traded right before a non-tender deadline, it's because he was going to be non-tendered. The Tampa Bay Rays traded Joey Wendell to the Marlins. Everyone's excited. The Marlins got a super utility guy. He's a good player. He really is. People call him an all-star. Let's not refer to players anymore as all-stars because we know that 50 players per league are put on the All-Star team because so many players are replacement players. They don't show up because they're injured. Pitchers don't go because they don't want to pitch or could pitch. Position players would rather go home, yada, yada, yada. Joey Wendell is a nice, serviceable player. The reason Tampa traded him to the Marlins is Tampa was going to non-tender him because those are the decisions Tampa makes. Tampa had to add Corey Kluber to their roster. You can only have 40 players on your roster. If you're going to add one, you have to subtract one. It's just math. But the Marlins tendered Jesus Aguilar yesterday. He's going to make $7.5 million. That's a lot of money for Jesus Aguilar. The Marlins tendered Brian Anderson. They tendered all their players. I have great hope for what the Marlins are doing, for the additions they've made, for understanding that their payroll can't be like the Cleveland Indians. They're not the Indians anymore, the Guardians, the Baltimore Orioles, the Pittsburgh Pirates, who all are rumored to have payrolls below that of Max Scherzer. But this is Jeter's fifth year. There's no more talking about the previous administration, how bad we were. There's no more saying we're trying to rebuild this from the bottom up, and it takes time. This is the fifth year, folks. It's winning time, and for them to admit what they admitted today, which is to trade Jorge Alfaro, who was a big pickup in the JT Realmuto trade, and to designate Lewis Brinson, who was the main centerpiece of the Christian Yelich trade, they got rid of Brinson yesterday. That is not a sign of failure of an organization and you probably were waiting for me to say that the Marlins stink and the trades they made were terrible. The true sign of failure is not admitting when you've made a mistake. And designating Lewis Brinson and not tendering and trading Alfaro is acknowledging that those players got the attempt, they got the at-bats, and the Marlins want to be better. That's what the tender deadline is for. It's for recognizing when you want to be better than what you've been. And that's what teams have to do who have to make real financial decisions. The Yankees don't have to make decisions like that because they can tender people as a matter of fact because they don't have to make tough decisions. Neither do the Dodgers. But the Rays do. The Marlins do. The Detroit Tigers do. They non-tendered Matthew Boyd. Can you imagine non-tendering a starting pitcher in this day and age? Remember what we talked about yesterday with starting pitching, how much money they're making, and how their utility is actually going the other direction? Detroit Tigers had enough money to sign Javi Baez. They've always had very decent payrolls. And getting rid of Boyd, who's one of the great guys in the game, by the way, it just means that you're moving on and trying to do better, that you're telling your front office, let's bring players in who give us a better chance to win. But what do you do if you've won the World Series? That's a real problem that the Braves have right now. Remember we talk about running it back and how hard it is to run it back and why no teams have actually repeated since the 299-2000 Yankees, 898-99-2000 Yankees? Running it back is impossible these days. Capturing lightning in a bottle is impossible. Freddie Freeman has not re-signed with the Braves yet. He's asking for 180 over six. The Yankees are in. The Blue Jays are in. The Dodgers are in. The Angels are in. Everybody's in. Can the Atlanta Braves let Freddie Freeman go? The St. Louis Cardinals let Albert Pujols go. And they survived. When you hold on to players who are being unreasonable in their demands, you are very likely headed in the wrong direction. The Atlanta Braves had a player named Adam Duvall. Do you remember that player? The Atlanta Braves non-tendered Adam Duvall. He then was with the Marlins. He was playing well with the Marlins. The Marlins traded him back to the Braves, and Adam Duvall played an important role in the Braves winning the World Series just a month ago. Adam Duvall is due to make about $9 million in arbitration, and the Atlanta Braves tendered Adam Duvall knowing that Acuna may or may not be back, knowing that Ozuna is likely to be back having served a suspension, knowing that George Soler, Eddie Rosario, the, those players that were acquired are probably not going to be on the team. The Braves made the decision to run it back with Duval. Do I give him credit for that? I don't. He's two years older than when he non-tendered him last time. He didn't all of a sudden become a different player. He's been exactly the same player but when you're at GM of a team that just won, you actually balance emotion, business, desire to repeat, the realistic possibility of repeating, and you put it all into the pot and you make the best decisions you can. So it's important to remember the perspective that all these teams have as they go to the tender deadline, as they go into the lockout, as they go into spring training. They can't have the perspective that you have as a fan. They have to have the perspective as an executive to put together the best team possible. And all of the work that starts the day after the World Series ends tonight at 11.59 when GMs will be told that their players have been locked out, that there's a full freeze on all transactions and that Major League Baseball will have its first work stoppage since 1994 to 1995, when the World Series was canceled in '94. That doesn't mean we're going to lose games, but it means that a work stoppage will start tonight in the minutes after the 11:59 deadline. Wait to see. Wait to see when we tell you something's going to happen. If it does, it does. If it doesn't, it doesn't. We'll revisit it. I got an easy wait to see for you here on December 1st. The lockout will begin tonight immediately after the expiration of the CBA. And we will be here to cover it tomorrow. And we will say it again. Keep calm. Carry on. And remember, it's just business. Come on, fans. It's nothing personal.